Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. So in the winter of 75, I got to compete on the Innsbruck track, and it was like going from you know, a uh, beat-up old <laughs> car to driving a Maserati. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you today? I'm prepared. I've got my plastic gloves and my hand sanitizer and my mask. I am ready to face the world. That's right. (laughs) We shouldn't talk about it because it is very serious, but man, this is... COVID-19 has taken over. It has. It has. But the games are still going on. They're canceling all the prep. I know. That's the hard thing. They are canceling all the preparation. Like the qualifiers. A lot of qualifiers and and other events have been canceled or postponed. Or they're having events with no audiences and no spectators, which is also very weird. But But T-Box says... The show will go on. And that it will. So we will keep our fingers crossed and, you know, keep our good thoughts for the people who are sick. Exactly. Since you're stuck in, we have some jobs for you. Right. Like naming our show. If you listened to the show a few weeks ago, you know that we have to change the name Olympic Fever to a different title so that we can seek sponsorship and patronage and advertising to help defray the costs of the show. So we are looking for your suggestions. Go to our website or uh, in the show notes, or we'll have it on social as well. We have a Google form where you can just suggest a name, and we are having so much fun looking at your suggestions. There are a lot of them. There are a lot of good ones. So I know. It's kind of like, oh, that was clever. And I, you know what I love with the name suggestions? It's stuff we would never have come up with. Oh, yes. We are definitely getting the hive mind going, which is fantastic. It yes. makes me feel so good that people are listening and responding. And, yes. and there's still all this love in the world. Exactly. So you have a few more days left. We are taking suggestions through March 15th. So for this week and next week, we are going back to 1976, and we are 
looking at some of the things that uh, happened during that Olympic year, we have a winter games interview and a summer games interview. So this week we are talking winter with Maura Grogan. She competed in the luge at Innsbruck 1976. Now, What's fascinating about this is it's only the fourth time that luge was on the Olympic program, and it's before the U.S. Luge Association had been founded. So we are really talking about Mora when she was in high school, was really in kind of the Wild West of the U.S.'s presence in the sport of luge. Take a listen. Moira, thank you so much for joining us today. And how did you get into luge? How did it start for you? It's a great story, actually. I was in Lake Placid competing and training as a figure skater, and I was in ninth grade, and one winter afternoon, it was right after lunch, I was in class, a knock comes at the door. The teacher goes to the door to talk to someone, comes back in and says, Maura, your dad's here. He wants to talk to you. So I thought, "Uh uh-oh. So I go out in the hallway, and my dad says, I just saw the coolest sport. We have to go try this. Pulled me out of school for the rest of the day, drove me out to the bobsled run at Mount Van Hovenberg, and put me on a loose sled. You had never seen it before up until that point? I I don't think I'd even heard of it. The reason they were doing luge demonstrations was it was a warm day at the bobsled run. They were having, I think, the World Bobsled Championships, and the track was not refrigerated, and so it was too warm to run the bobsled, so they decided to do a demonstration at the luge to try to get more people interested in the sport, and my dad just happened to be out there, saw it, thought it looked like fun came and got me. He did the luge for a couple of years. I did the luge and stuck it out to make the Olympic team. So this would have been about 1971, 72? Probably 70, 71. I was 14. Okay. So, you know, back in those days, there was no YouTube. There was no pulling up videos. What, what was your first impression of it? I thought it was a blast. My, they put me on a on the sled partway down the run at Mount Van Hovenberg, and I felt like I was going a million miles an hour, and I managed to get through that. And so the next run, they started me at the top, and off I went and got down, and it was really thrilling and a lot of fun. And, of course, I knew about the bobsled because living in Lake Placid, you meet bobsledders and you go out to the – the track and watch competition and so I knew about sledding in general I just never seen the luge before that I can recall so you try it out you decide that it's absolutely so much fun where do you go from there at that point so the program was still pretty much in its infancy even though they already had three Olympics under their belt so the next day the amateur athletic union hosted a competition which I won for my age class and was, of course, then totally hooked. And that was it for my loose training for the first year. The second year, we had maybe three weeks of training. Again, I believe the AAU was in charge of it. Again, on the, on the Mount Van Hovenberg run. And so that was my first two years of competition or training was really maybe a whole month on the track itself. 
And then the third year was the first year of the kind of pre-Olympic trials. That would have been in the winter of 74-5. And I can't even recall several months of training. And then, of course, the following year was the preparation for the Olympics, which were held in the the, in February of 76. So the whole U.S. team, unless they traveled to Europe, had only a few months of time on the track. And of course, as you may recall, the results reflected how little time we had to train. So when you first started and you're winning your age group, how many people are you competing against? One or two. I can't even remember. It wasn't very many. So it wasn't that hard to win. But, it, you know, they were, they were again, trying to get more people involved, and so they kind of took anybody that showed up. And my first year, my helmet was this enormous motorcycle helmet, weighed about a ton. And so we finally learned that you had to have a lightweight helmet, and so that helped the second year in terms of increasing my speeds and my flexibility on the track. Okay, so at this point, there's no U.S. Luge Association. There's no real support. There's no team to speak of, really. Did you do any traveling at all in those first couple years? No. In fact, the only tracks I've ever been on are Lake Placid, the old bobsled run, and then the Olympic track in Innsbruck. Most of the rest of the folks that made the U.S. team for 76 except for one other woman, had been on the previous Olympic teams, at least one or two of them. Several had been on all three. Lou started with the 64 Olympics, so there had been 64, 68, and 72 before um, I started training. And so a lot of them trained in Europe. You know, they had jobs in the military, which is what was common for a lot of sliders, both bobsled and luge in those days, so they could get time off to slide. Some just paved their own way and traveled around Europe. It was a very ragtag kind of vagabond group of people that got assembled to make up the U.S. team such as it was. So where were the sleds themselves coming from? I think the vast majority were made out of the gasser factory in Austria. And I'm guessing some of the other, the Eastern European countries, I don't recall if they used gasser sleds or not, but I had a gasser sled and I think most of the, most, if not all of the U S team had a gasser sled. Were you just buying these like at a sporting goods store? No, you had to go to the gasser factory and I can't remember where it was in Austria, but we did go there at one point to buy a sled. And if I'm recalling correctly, and you have to forgive me, this is 44 years ago or longer. Um, I think my sled was a used sled, but it was still a gasser sled, which was considered state of the art at the time. Which today I'm and sure I'm, would be a joke, right? Well, no, not really a joke. They're still, they look different. They're still fundamentally the same. And ironically, I just donated all my Olympic memorabilia to the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Archives. And as you know, 
Colorado Springs is getting ready to open a brand new Olympic museum, and my sled's going to be on display. So I am thrilled, oh, and I feel like I won a gold me- gold medal <laughs> just for that. So I'm really excited for people to see what it looks like then. It does look different today. It looks more streamlined, but it's fundamentally the same thing, which is some metal bars and a couple of runners and a fiberglass seat that you sit in and go 70 to 90 miles an hour down an ice chute. Wow. In getting the sled, I imagine that that's kind of a big step in, yes, I'm going to be serious about that sport. Where it Was it a little bit of, hey, mom, dad, I need to have a sled? Not really. I'm an only child, and my parents were very lower to middle class, but what they had, they you know, were more than happy to spend on me. So I had, you know, figure skating was extraordinarily expensive. Luge was a lot less so. And they were very happy to buy me sports equipment. I had skis. I had, you know, whatever I was interested in, they were willing to support. So it wasn't a hard sell. So when your dad took you to that luge run, it was like, oh, wait, I can save some money. I don't have to buy sparkly costumes anymore. <laughs> No, because I was still skating too. So um, <laughs> they were just they were just increasing their expenses, not reducing them. So this is pre nineteen eighty Olympics, and so Lake Placid did not obviously have the Olympic Training Center there. They just had some leftover facilities from nineteen thirty two. What was that like? The track, the Mountain Hobenberg track, was designed for bobsleds. And as I mentioned earlier, it was not refrigerated. It was an exceptionally dangerous track for luge for a couple reasons. One is that um, nowadays the, the runs are designed to accommodate both bob and luge, and almost all of them are refrigerated, which means the ice is smooth. The sides are made entirely of ice. The lanes are fairly narrow, so there's not a lot of wiggle room to, you know, if you make a mistake, you're going to hit a wall quickly. When we were training on the Mount Van Hovenberg track, the sides are made of railroad ties. The track was unbelievably bumpy because it would freeze and, you know, thaw and freeze and thaw, and there was no equipment to really smooth it out. They would, you know, throw water on the track and smooth it down with shovels, but it wasn't like having a refrigerated sled. So, you know, you start at the top and you're going down, you hit bumps, you hit the sides of the runways, which are made out of railroad ties, ended up with six inch long slivers in your arms and legs by the time you got down. And half the time, you know, you were you were not convinced you were going to get down safely. And I was uh, recently talking to one of the more contemporary losers, and he said, you guys were incredible to even be willing to go down that track. He said, I had tried it a few times, and there's no way I would have slid on that. It was so dangerous. Oh, that's incredible. When you got, to, just to stay on the track aspect, the track in Innsbruck was an artificial track. So what was that transition like when you got there and you had that kind of track to slide on? It was fantastic. They had a competition the year before the Olympics 
on the new track, which is required of all new facilities prior to an Olympics. So in the winter of 75, I got to compete on the Innsbruck track. And it was like going from, you know, a beat up old (laughs) car to driving a Maserati. It was smooth. It was safe. It was fast. And it just, you know, mentally it, you felt like you could focus on the line you were taking and um, how to get down quickly rather than how to get down safely. When you're talking about how to get down safely, like what what kind of techniques would you have to use that were different from getting down quickly? I don't know that they were different because, you know, at the end of the day, if you want to win, you're not focused on getting down safely. So I think that also contributed to the fact that the U.S. team didn't do very well. And there were just a couple of curves on the old Mount Van Hovenberg track that were notorious. And you just focused on how do I get in and out of this one so that I can then make the rest of the trip. So, you know, it was it's all elite sports at the end of the day are a combination of your physical ability, but even more importantly, your mental focus. And I think the difficulty of that track did not help the team in terms of moving forward because you had to spend energy on the dangerousness and the inconvenience of the track itself. Yeah, the possibility of dying might have distracted you a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, not really. I, I never thought about that. But you do think about getting hurt and Several people did, and you always got somewhat hurt, bruises, and as I mentioned, you were pulling splinters out of your arms and legs, and my hands were numb for several years after I stopped competing from being, you know, hitting the, the sides of the track and just getting bounced around, so it wasn't a good experience back in those days. What other injuries did you, did you ever have a serious injury? No, thankfully. I got um I flew out of the track a couple of times, but uh, fortunately my fled fled through flew in one direction, I flew in the other and landed on a snowbank, so nothing nothing much happened. Nothing much happened. Um I do have a question about equipment because you're talking about the sleds don't look that different, but things like the suits and the helmets and the gloves. What were your clothes made of at the time? So we all had to provide our own training clothes, of course. So I don't even remember where I got my helmet. And it wasn't a bike helmet, but it wasn't a motorcycle helmet either. It was kind of this just funky-looking helmet. My mom had a gal that designed a lot of the figure skating costumes sew me a one-piece tracksuit out of kind of heavy nylon and then we wore sneakers and I have no memory of the kind of gloves that I had to be honest they weren't the fancy padded ones with the rubber that they have now you know none of the equipment was provided until we got to the Olympics by anybody but ourselves or our parents so it was sort of whatever you could get off the shelf that seemed to work. When you were on the national team, I guess, I guess you would call it being on the national team. Yeah. Were you, were you working with the other losers and the, I mean, how much team was there at the time since there was no association? Yes. And so 
some of the losers were more generous than others with helping, you know, newer people. The team, as I mentioned, was sort of a ragtag group of individuals that had gotten into the sport through various means. We did not have our first qualified coach until three weeks before the Olympic Games started in 1976. And that was a guy named Peter Rogowski who had defected from Poland and was on the Polish national team. And so he worked with us pretty religiously to get us at least somewhat ready for the Olympics. And we spent time as once the team was selected, which I think was kind of in maybe December, we had then the rest of December, January, and early February to try to prepare we spent time in Lake Placid as a team training and, you know, working with him to, to kind of bring us up to some semblance of what was then contemporary technology. One of the things that was noted about the 76 games was really it was a game, the, the folks that won had very sophisticated equipment. It may not look different, but... They were, you know, using the kind of sled preparation. The runners were waxed and sanded correctly. They were testing different fabric. It turned out that they were testing different helmets. The Polish team had these conehead helmets that they thought would be very aerodynamic and turned out it didn't really help them do well, but they did look exactly like the Coneheads from Saturday Night Live, and and, uh, it was quite amusing. But just the preparation of the European athletes was so superior to ours that it was a combination both of lack of any kind of proper coaching and then the equipment that made the difference. And I know that a lot of the Europeans were very generous toward the Americans in terms of sharing ideas and techniques. You know, those are, those of the Americans that did travel internationally, there were some really great folks that were competing for other countries that befriended, befriended them and us and tried to help as much as possible. So we read a little bit about Peter Rogowski and just sort of his story. What was he like as a person? And as your coach? Well, he and I were very close because my maiden name was Haponski. So we were both of Polish heritage. So he ended up getting invited to my first wedding and he and his parents. So, you know, we got to know the family really well. Peter was very serious. He had a very dry sense of humor. I think it was hard for him because... He had just defected. I I don't know exactly what was going on, but I think he was still being monitored by the Polish Communist Party. And I know at the Olympics in Innsbruck, he was very cautious. And the Polish team was cautious, I think, because of his defection. So he was guarded, but friendly, very talented as far as I could tell and just generally a good guy and a good friend and very young was he I don't remember he seemed old to me I was only I had 
just turned 18 when I made the Olympic team. So he was probably what, 10 years older than me. Yeah. Yeah. He said it was in the article that we read, uh, an old sports illustrated. They said he was 27 in the run of the Olympics, but for a coach, that was very young. And now looking back, you're like 27. That's a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But he was the first person we had who had any, you know, legitimate experience with the sport, as far as I can recall. And, you know, the fact that he showed up and was willing to coach us was a real gift. So when you, at the time, when you told other people you were a loser or that you competed in luge, what was the reaction? Everybody just about to a person said, what's that? And even after I was in the Olympics, people said, what's that? Nowadays, if I say I'm a loser, everybody, with very few exceptions, says, oh, my God, I love that sport, and you must have been crazy. So it's very different in terms of Americans' knowledge of the sport and appreciation of it. Were you still in high school when the Olympics happened? No, I was in college. I I was in my... For, uh, I was a sophomore when I made the team uh, over the Christmas holidays, and so I took my second semester sophomore year off to compete in the Olympics. What did you do in winter break? Oh, I just made the Olympic team. That's fine. <laughs> well, that's a perfect segue because I want to talk about Innsbruck because we've never spoken to anybody who's been to Innsbruck. So. There was a trial, there was Olympic trials, and you make the team. What was that like? Being an Olympian, whether I came in second to last, just to be uh, honest here. But so whether you're, you know, a, a medal contender or just an Olympian, I think it is one of the most privileged experiences anyone can have. And particularly the Winter Olympics, which are smaller in general, more intimate. And at that time, it was much smaller. Of course, many fewer sports. It was magical to be part of that whole experience. I got a lot of attention from the U.S. press and, of course, friends and family. And just then once we were over in Innsbruck, you know, you'd have your U.S. team uniform on and Random Austrians would stop you in the street for autographs. People would be yelling, go USA. And, you know, it was just, it it was an incredibly happy and lovely experience overall. So you were in the same Olympics as Dorothy Hamill, which of course had a big influence on both Jill and me, because I think we both had the haircut. (laughs) (laughs) We confess. Um, A friend had a haircut. Oh, okay. I, you didn't I have braids. <laughs> what was it's that? It's a great haircut. Yeah. So, what was that? You know, what was being in Innsbruck? You know, with kind of the those excitements and those pieces. Like, did you get to other events? Did you? What was it yes. like? To well, it? so I had special kind of insight because having been a competitive skater, I wasn't on Dorothy's league, but I knew her well. We trained, we had the same coaches. We both trained, you know, I trained full-time in Lake Placid. She trained part-time in Lake Placid. We happened to be roomed next to each other in the Olympic village. 
And so um, I knew the whole U.S. team, the whole U.S. figure skating team personally. So what happened was my luge is always early in the Olympics. And unfortunately for me, the first luge run for the women's event was the same time as the opening ceremonies. So I didn't get to compete in the opening ceremonies, which was and remains a huge disappointment. I think that's a bad thing to do to the athletes is to not let them be in the opening ceremony since it's such a big part of the whole Olympics experience. But that said, I was also done after the first four days of the Olympics and figure skating, particularly ladies, because it's such a marquee event tends to be late in the Olympics. So I got to watch a lot of figure skating in person, you know, as Olympians, we got tickets to other events And so I went to most of the figure skating events and I was in the arena the night Dorothy won the gold medal. That must have been amazing. It was, it was pretty spectacular. Watching her live win the gold medal was one of the highlights. The other highlight, I was in the Olympic village and they had some stores with clothing and, you know, they had a, it was a whole village and I was in some shop and they had TV on and Franz Klammer was starting the downhill and so I stopped and pretty much everybody in the entire village stopped where they were and watched the TV and watched him do one of the most impressive athletic events I've still ever seen in winning the downhill that year and of course the fact that he was from Austria it was a big deal but it was so exciting, and I will never forget where I was when it happened and just the thrill of watching him do that well. When you were competing, and granted, yeah, you said of you finished second to last, how did you feel about your competition overall compared to what training you had? I, of course, you know, before every run, I I did what all losers do, visualize and imagine myself winning and wanted to do the very best I could. I was quite disappointed in my results, but realistically, you know, our best finish was Kate Homestead, who I think this was her third Olympics And she came in 21st out of 26. So even with that level of experience, you know, that was the best the U.S. did in the women's that year. I found the whole experience of competing pretty fabulous, just as the opportunity to get on the get on the sled and go down four times. And when you look at the times from the first place finisher to the last place finisher, There's not, it's not minutes, you know, it's seconds that differentiate. And so I was, you know, unhappy that I didn't finish better, but realistically I was pleased that I finished. Um, We we finished all four runs, everybody, all 25 or six competitors finished, which I guess was the first time maybe since Luge was introduced to the Olympics that everybody finished, the whole U.S. team finished their runs and so there weren't any crashes and for me personally it was a good experience how much off ice training or what kind of off ice training were you doing at the time 
I was doing a lot. So what I, you know, I was still competing or training as a figure skater and that could be as much as six hours a day, six days a week. So um, I was very, very fit from the figure skating. But when I got to college, I found a trainer at the gym and he turned out to be this lovely man named Lou Miranda. Um, I was at Yale and he was in the gym and I told him what I was trying to do. And he and I worked together the whole fall semester of my sophomore year and did a lot of strength training, which is pretty critical. You have to be physically strong to be able to steer the sled and and maintain things going at 70 miles an hour. And so he really helped me a lot. The one real negative was that I was in two very different sports in terms of body type. With skating, you want to be pretty slender. And I was still, I had been trying to complete my eighth test, which is the called the gold medal test in figure skating. And you can't even try out for senior level or Olympic level without having passed that. And I knew I wasn't going to continue competing as a skater, but I wanted that mark. Um, I wanted to have finished everything I could in the figure skating. So I lost 25 pounds between my freshman and sophomore years of college, which was good for the figure skating, but terrible for luge because, you know, weight, be, having some weight on your body helps with the G-forces and uh, getting down the hill. So that was a strike against me, but I was in incredibly good shape from running, weightlifting, skating, you name it, um, when I got to the Olympic trials. So being a girl in the 70s in the gym lifting weights was not typical. No, it wasn't. I don't I don't know that I really even thought too much about it. Yeah, you know, I was the fifth or sixth year my entering class of coeducation at Yale. So the, we were still a little bit of an anomaly anyway, but I found Yale very welcoming toward women. Lou was, you know, very helpful and not at all patronizing. And he just told me what to do and I did it. And it didn't feel like that big a deal, to be honest. So after the Olympics, did you continue to compete? I didn't. I realized that in order to be good at luge, I was going to have to do it full time go to Europe and train, and there still wasn't much of an infrastructure. You know, it was starting to get a little better, but there wasn't much infrastructure for the U.S. Luge team, and I was getting a fantastic education and knew that I had a good future ahead of me in other ways, and so I hung up my sled, so to speak, and focused on my studies and I wanted to be a sports journalist. That didn't pan out, but I felt like I was certainly well-prepared, and I was an English major, so I I just focused on getting my degree and going on from there. Did you stay involved in the sport? No, not for a long time. I didn't. I 
the difficulty of training, the difficulty of being a member of the U.S. team in those days, there was a lot of weird toxic stuff that happened between the various competitors and the way competitions and training was handled. And it wasn't a pleasant experience. I persisted in spite of some of the goings on in the luge. I think it helped that I was, you know, from 14 to 18 and kind of just too stupid to get too involved. Um, but it was not a good experience overall. And I, by the time I was done with the Olympics, I was done. And so I've, I've got to see luge in the Salt Lake Olympics and I've reunited with some of the current losers at some of the Olympic reunions. And that's been a lot of fun. And of course the team today is very different from what it was like when I trained. So when you look at the team now, I'm so curious as to, are you jealous? Are you excited for them? What's the, what's the emotion? I'm excited for them and I'm proud of them. We're still not consistently winning medals, but the U.S. Luge team continues to do well in World Cup competitions, and we have now won some medals. And, you know, I, I think that it's a, a much different ball game, and I am very, very happy. And I'm glad that I persisted and was one of the people that helped kind of make their future happen. After the Olympics, I did stay, I didn't stay involved in competing, but I did help with some of the fundraising and the image raising in the early days and was was involved in getting New York State Telephone. I think it was the Bell Telephone to be an early sponsor, um, you know, back in the late 70s of Luge. And so that started to pave the way for more corporate sponsorship and so I'm I'm proud of having done that and of being in the early days. And I would love I, – I well, actually now I'm not sure, but I thought I would love to get back on a sled. Every time I go see a luge run, I'm like, I want to get on a sled. But I think the reality is I'm probably glad I can't. When was the last time you went down a run? <laughs> it was right after the Olympics in 76. So I haven't been on a, a sled in 44 years and don't even own one anymore since I just gave it to the archives. There's was one it, other thing I want to mention yeah. about the 76 games, if I could, um, which was the East Germans. And we didn't talk about that. So that turned out to be, in retrospect, the beginning of the noticeable steroid use of the East Germans. And I remember being at the track and seeing these women and thinking, what the hell? Two of the three uh, women competitors looked like men. They were enormous physically. They looked like men. It was the weirdest thing. And, of course, at then, at least I didn't know what was going on. And I think the U.S. team in general didn't know what was going on with the doping scandal. But it was shockingly noticeable, and East Germany took two of the three medals in women's, two of the three medals in men, and I think, if I'm recalling correctly, won the gold in doubles as well. And so when, you know, then in the summer games, it became even more noticeable with the swimmers, and then after that, the, the news started coming out, and 
it was not at all surprising to those of us that were there that that's what was going on. So had you even heard of steroids at the time? No, I hadn't. You know, we did. I didn't know what was going on, but I the memory that I have. One of the things that happens when you make the Olympic team and you show up at the Olympics is you have to go to the medical unit. And I didn't realize this because nobody prepped me. They do a pregnancy test and a sex test on women. Now, what would have happened if I were pregnant? I don't know. I wasn't. So um, I don't know if they would have banned me from competing or what. But they did verify that I was a woman. And I remember getting to the the Deleuze run and seeing these East Germans and thinking, how on earth did they pass the sex test? And that was my overarching kind of impression was these are not like any women I've ever seen. When uh, So the next Olympics was Lake Placid and that being your hometown, did you go to events there or what was it like I having did. that Olympics um, next? It was fun. Yes, I did go to the 80 games and Honestly, I don't even remember if I watched much of, of the luge. What I do remember is getting to see Eric Hyden both just walking around on the street and um, competing and those thighs, I will never forget. He was incredible specimen of um, athleticism. And then, of course, the miracle on ice. Unfortunately, I didn't get to go to the game, but we watched it on TV and I was staying in a in about a mile from the Olympic arena. And after the game was over, I walked outside and you could hear the screaming and cheering from the arena a mile away. And it was so incredible. More recently, you've written some op-eds about the discussion of women's parity in sport, particularly uh, ski jumping being added to the program. And we all know that women couldn't ski jump because it would just leave their uteruses all over the slopes. Do you think that the G forces and luge helped keep your lady parts in place? Because, (laughs) because that that's one of the interesting things is that when luge was added to the Olympic program, both men and women were added at the same time, which, you know, for being in the the sixties, that's pretty impressive. It is impressive, and I don't know how that happened. Um, I'll have to research that one of these days. I think that whole thing is ridiculous about, you know, the the effect of sports on women's bodies. And, you know, it's not women doing this. It's men deciding what is good for women. And I think that women themselves should be able to decide what level of risks they want to take with their bodies and with their reproductive system. And again, as I mentioned, I don't know what would have happened if I, in fact, I had been pregnant when they tested me, um, whether they would have banned me or not. And I think pregnant women should be allowed, you know, pregnant or non-pregnant women should be allowed to decide what they want to do, whether they're athletes or not with their own bodies. Hooray. (laughs) Post-Olympics, while you're still in college, you get to play ice hockey, which I understand you wanted to play when you were younger, but nobody would let you play. Right. What What was that like to finally get to play hockey? It was and remains my all-time favorite sport for two reasons. One, just I love the 
art and the intricacy of hockey and and if you if you watch it and particularly in a game that doesn't involve fights you can see how incredible the passing and skating and strategy is the second is that was my very first team sport so i was a figure skater and i was a loser and in both of those it's only up to you. And in skating, the spotlight is figuratively and literally on you out there on the ice in front of thousands of people. With hockey, you're part of a team, and it really requires the whole team to work together. And it turned out to be much more suited to my personality. And I, I love to be part of a team and, you know, help make good things happen. And so... At the time, this was in 1977 and 78, we weren't very good. A few of the girls on the team had played in prep school, but most of us were coming to ice hockey from knowing how to figure skate or maybe having, you know, a little bit of experience in high school. So it wasn't, you know, a a really impressive game, but we had a great time with it. And, you know, again, paved the way now for the girls to be able to play at a very high level. And I'm much more jealous of women hockey players being able to play today than I am of women losers. If I had my druthers, and I hope I come back in my next life as a hockey player. Fantastic. Well, more that'll wrap up this part of the interview. Thank, oh, my gosh. I mean... I, I just can't get over the whole ragtag taggedness of it, of it all. <laughs> and I it's guess just, it was better than when it was even in the earlier days. So I have a lot to be thankful for. You know, we one of the things that we do on the show is we watch, we have movie club and we watch Chariots of Fire recently. Mm-hmm. And in that, <laughs> they have this guy from, uh, was it New Zealand, where he's like, I'm in Paris, so I'm going to run... The, in the Olympics for New Zealand. Like it was just sort of this random thing that rich prep school boys would do. And, right. it, kind, and it feels like the luge was sort of like, oh yeah, you're kind of an athlete. Let's put you on a sled and send you down a luge run at hundred miles an hour. Yeah. I think that was kind of the experience. And as I said, the results showed it. We weren't well-trained. We didn't have the best equipment, but we were the pioneers that enabled it to continue and, to be something much more popular and impressive today. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Maura. Maura is happily retired after a long career in the business world, most recently as a consultant providing services to nonprofit organizations, governments, educational institutions, foundations, and Native nations and indigenous enterprises. And as she said, her luge sled will be on display at the new U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum that is opening this year in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Okay, now I need to apologize to her because... For some bizarre reason, I kept pronouncing her name as Moira because I cannot say it correctly. (laughs) And it wasn't that I did not know her name. It's just my mouth. And even when I try and say it, I won't try it now because it's kind of embarrassing. I can't do it correctly. So I did know her name. I just could not get my New York mouth to make that sound. I think she understands. So I apologize. Yes. So, but that was a lot of fun. That it was, was fun. Oh my gosh, just the 
thank goodness this was just a, a phone interview and she didn't see us with our mouths open with <laughs> you did what <laughs> and it's always when I'm sure it's like when you're when you're looking back on your high school years 20 30 40 years down the road and you're like I cannot believe we let high schoolers do this oh and I know when we think about and we we had this when we read Shirley Babishoff's book and whenever and even when we talked to John Neighbor when we hear about what the athletes in the 70s you know at 72 76 were doing we're always horrified <laughs> going to we need to like start talking to people who were in the 80s and the 90s just to hear some different perspective and hear if it was still like well you just got to do what you do i was competing i was an athlete Yes, it's it's a little frightening what people so young were doing then, and they were so relaxed about it. Mm-hmm. You know, the pressure on them was so different than the pressure on the kids now. And I don't mean to sound like an old cranky lady, get off my lawn, but because the world was smaller, mm-hmm. you know, there was no social media, there was no internet. They had that two weeks or whatever of fame. And then they were protected the most, the rest of the time, they kind of went to school and did their thing. And, you know, she just went back to college and was probably like, Oh yeah, I was just at the Olympics. It's fine. It's no big deal. I can't not today. Nope. Although I guess it's different too, because if you wanted to cash in on that fame, it was probably, you couldn't No, And it's still hard to cash in on that fame today for a lot of people. And I think, things are more expensive than they were back then. I mean, can you That's imagine true. season one, two weeks long? <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I think everything is so much more expensive and everything, the high tech aspect of every sport, no matter if you're looking at shoes or clothing or a fancy sled, it's it's got to be just crazy expensive. Right. So. And travel. Yes. All the travel is because your your season is longer than two weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, you're they're flying back and forth to all these different races. Right. So the seasons are all longer. There are more races. There's just more involved. Right. I don't know. Interesting. But it was fascinating to look back at uh, 1976. And thank you so much, Maura, for joining us on the show. And welcome to Team Olympic Fever. Speaking of, let's get an update on our Team Olympic Fever. Oh, tofu. <laughs> Sorry. COVID-19 gone to my head. Our biathlete Claire Egan is ending her season early. She has pulled out of the last two World Cup races and is heading home. We will look for more details as to why, but sad to sad to hear that. Yeah, she said her body seems to have failed her, so we don't know if she's hurt or sick. Mm-hmm. She was sort of vague in her post, but whatever it is, she's not feeling her best, so we wish her a quick recovery. Right, and uh, I'm catching up on uh, biathlon from last weekend because the two of us were at a conference, and uh, one of the big names from Norway pulled out of that race because of the flu. Uh, not COVID-19 flu, but she had she was sick in other ways, and was just taking the week off. So there could be something going around. Right. Because when they're all traveling together like that, Mm -hmm. it's very easy, I'm sure. Exactly. But moving on to other uh, better news, uh, Aaron Jackson in the ISU World Single Distance Championships for long track speed skating. This was in mid-February in Salt Lake City when she placed seventh, but she got a personal best. And we may have mentioned this. Yes. We may have mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when she was competing in the 500 meters. It was... I. I just watched it, and 
the announcers were talking about how she had been really trying to break through her time. She had kind of hit one of those plateaus. And at this race, she was able to break through, get a personal best, get to another level. And that was really good. And her season is over. She uh, was at the Am Cup and her final competition had uh, two solid 500 meter races and new personal bests in both the 1000 and 1500. And she, oh, fantastic. Yeah, and she raced her first mass start. Oh, those things are scary. I know. I it's still don't understand. I know. We got to get somebody to explain the lawn track mass start because I still don't get it. Even okay. after all those mass start we watched at Pyeongchang, I did not understand what was happening. Okay. On the list, congratulations to you, Erin. And so this summer, she's gearing up for some more inline racing and roller derby and lawn track conditioning. Very excited for her. Our pair skater Megan Duhamel and her partner Eric Radford will be on the Stars of Ice 2020 tour. They have been posting videos of their first practices together after Megan came back from her maternity leave. And so they've been doing throws and lifts and things. And it, it's been really fun to watch the video. So if you don't follow Megan on Instagram, it's it's great. And she's struggling with her new body. Mm-hmm. And she's been very honest about it. But man, she is skating beautifully. Oh, that's Even cool. with all the changes. And I hope she posts more of the finished product of their routines. So okay. we get to see them because it really looks good. And also sticking with our Canadian Team Olympic Fever members, Jacqueline Simino was on the Andrew Carter Morning Show talking with Ken Connors about the uh, about Team Canada's RBC Training Ground program, which is like uh, our next Olympic hopeful here in the United States. So they were having a competition coming up and inviting people to come out and try out. And she had said that uh, there are some people who have been through the Training Ground program who are hopefuls for Tokyo. Wow. Yeah. Not not like this year's, but in previous right. years. Yeah. In so previous years. Nice. Yeah. So, so does that mean that they're picking people for artistic swimming? Not necessarily. Oh, okay. But it's just it's just one of those battery of tests and we're gonna try you in a different sport and again the matching somebody with a sport who may never have thought of that for themselves or had exposure to it and sports likewise getting access to people and more talent. It's exciting. It's exciting to hear that those programs are successful. Yes. Hey, and if you're willing to put jello in your hair, I say go for it. (laughs) Moving on to our Tokyo 2020 update. The aquatics venue is finished, which means now all of the permanent venues are done and construction is complete. Tokyo is on track with those. Oh, God. Now I'm like, are you starting to get a little nervous? Uh, a little bit now that it, as of today, the World Health Organization has labeled COVID-19 a pandemic. I'm still not horribly worried that it's going to stick around. And here, at least by us, things are being canceled right and left. So yeah, part of part of it is, are they are, are people going overboard with how they're being careful or are we preventing a, a bubble in the number of cases? So if that's the case and then people just kind of stick to themselves and COVID-19 doesn't spread, well, you know, once it gets warmer, it won't be able to survive on surfaces as long as it does. That's what my hope is. Wash your hands. Don't lick the tray table on the airplane. That's my hopeful non-medical opinion, but we we shall see. Every, Every day is a new story. 
Yeah. But at least Tokyo is still going on with their preparations. I know Jacqueline had said in her interview that because the interviewer had asked her about COVID-19 and she said, well, it's not really my job. My job is to train and keep training. And she lets other people worry about the, the illness for them. And keep them so okay. our job is to podcast and keep podcasting and right let keep the, the flame let, alive that's our job it <laughs> keeps the world health organization to make the hard choices right so and speaking of keeping the flame alive the backup flame has been lit okay so they light the backup flame separately oh in the rehearsal. during the rehearsal yes because I was thinking you light the backup flame from the flame but that no. makes sense that it's the rehearsal flame is the backup flame. I'm so confused. I just confused myself. <laughs> yes. So they've had the dress rehearsal for the flame lighting. And during that, they light a flame and they hold that to keep as backup. If the original flame goes out. If they so, have defective torches. Right. So they've really called down who will be at the ceremony. The ceremony takes place the day we drop this episode. So we'll be able to watch that online and then and then talk about it with because barely anybody can go i know the last i heard there were only 100 invited guests going usually they have children who make up the the rings and those children have not been invited anymore but they've got the the goddesses and they've got a, a torchbearer and the goddesses are protected because they're goddesses yeah. hope so wash your hands after you light that flame goddess that will hopefully go off without a hitch and the flame will be on its way through Greece for a little bit before going over to Japan. I always worry a little bit when I watch the flame lighting. So I'm, I'm going to try and lighten the mood here. So they light the flame with the bowl reflected from the sun, mm -hmm. right? And the goddesses wear these beautiful, you know, Grecian style dresses. I want to know what the fabric is because I look very flammable. <laughs> I and thought I... you said you were going to lighten the mood. Well, or, or did you mean, or did you mean lighten? <laughs> and they have these beautiful pleats, and I always have this this little thought, like, what happens if the pleated skirt gets caught by a gust of wind just as the bowl is lighting the torch, and then the goddess would go up in flames? I think there's a version of stop, drop, and roll in Greek too. I do. This is what I think of <laughs> when I watch these events. And you wonder why I need the giant box of puffs because I always go to these these disaster scenarios. This has never happened. No one's ever caught fire. Nobody's ever, you know, dropped the torch and burned the house down. But I worry about those Greek goddesses. And that was even before COVID nineteen. Well, we'll we'll watch. I'm sure they'll be fine. And I mean, it'll be they a have like a, an Olympic. A uh, fire extinguisher handy in case something goes wrong. <laughs> Can you imagine if that got in the wrong hands? <laughs> they would spray T-Bock and there would be an international <laughs> incident. Like is Spiros standing on the side with his Olympic branded fire extinguisher <laughs> just in case something goes wrong? Maybe. Just out of frame. So you never just see Just out of them. frame. Yeah. Spiros, take care of everybody for me. I'm worried. Well, I think that will wrap it up for this week. And don't forget to send us your show name suggestions by March 15th, and we will choose the title. 
Email us at olinfever at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 530-70-FEVER. We're Olin Fever on Twitter and Insta and Olympic Fever Podcast Group on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. I don't mean to sound like an old cranky lady, get off my lawn. Do, 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 do.